following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Well, we've just finished our first month in the year of spiritual disciplines. Uh, Last month we focused on the foundation, that is the corporate worship, exalting Christ together. And as we enter into the month of February, we want to turn our attention to a second discipline. You see it on the screen up there, the discipline, the spiritual discipline of fellowship. In fact, that is the one, one of the ones explicitly mentioned in our theme verse for the year, Acts 2, 42, which says that the early church was continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And again, that phrase, continually devoted, communicates that this was something ongoing, this was a practice, this was a discipline that the early church carried out together. One of the things, again, explicitly mentioned here is that they were devoted to fellowship. Now, what is fellowship, really? What does fellowship mean biblically? We don't get much insight from the word itself, which is a compound word of fellow and ship, of like butterfly is not a flying stick of butter and a hot dog is not a warm canine so to fellowship is not referring to a man on a boat sorry that is a poor attempt at humor but seriously there are many wrong notions that christians have about fellowship for some fellowship means food and conversation for others it is attending a church service or a bible study still others would say fellowship means building relationships with one another And indeed, most understand fellowship. Well, that's something that happens when believers gather together. They they, they fellowship. And while these may indeed be some of the things that are observed externally in regards to fellowship, they don't reflect the true nature of fellowship, what it really is, what it is based on. So if we're to be as a church continually devoted to what the early church was devoted to in terms of fellowship, biblical fellowship, we have to know what it is, right? We have to understand what it means. That's our objective this morning. So if you would, please turn to 1 John chapter 1, the very same chapter I read a few moments ago, where we will learn the true nature or the nature of true Christian fellowship. Now, 1 John is a rather unique letter in how it begins. In fact, it is the only letter in the New Testament besides Hebrews, which it's really a sermon, but First John is the only letter which doesn't begin with a personal reference or a greeting, a salutation. Instead, John jumps right into the message. He writes this letter probably more than 50 years after Christ's death and resurrection. And so he's writing to the next generation in the church, many of whom probably were not even alive when Jesus walked the earth. Early church tradition indicates that John had planted and shepherded several churches in Asia Minor, that is, uh, modern Turkey, the western part of modern Turkey. In fact, late second century bishop, uh, late second century bishop of Ephesus, Polycrates, said that John was buried in Ephesus. And today, there's a, the Basilica of Saint John, which stands over one of the presumed burial sites in the city of Selçuk in Turkey. John tells us explicitly in his letter why he wrote. 
He tells us in 1 John 5, 13, that these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. We see here that John wrote this letter specifically and primarily as an encouragement, a test, if you will, the assurance of salvation of the believers so that they would know that they have salvation, that they have eternal life. And one can understand that John had a concern about this. He had a concern about their assurance because many had been shaken in their faith due to several heresies that were circulating about regarding Jesus Christ. These heresies had grown in popularity and were even infiltrating the church. One of these heresies came from a first century heretic who was in the time of John named Serinthus. He argued that Jesus was the earthly man of Nazareth and that the Christ was a heavenly deity that came upon Jesus at the baptism and then stayed with him just before his death on the cross. Late second century church father Irenaeus tells a story that he had heard from John's disciple Polycarp. It was a story of when John had met or had seen Serinthus took place at a bathhouse in Ephesus. And apparently, as Polycarp tells it, John saw Serinthus there in the bathhouse and he cried out, let us save ourselves. The the bathhouse may fall down because Serinthus, the enemy of the faith, is inside. John, even in his old age, was still a son of thunder. We can't be sure that that's actually what took place. But what is clear from John's letter is that he was addressing the false teaching of Serinthus, as well as other heresies that were circulating about, heresies dealing with sin and and the fact that uh, the sin is something of the physical nature, and so don't worry about it. The spiritual is what's pure. Heresies that gave birth to Gnosticism. And so given these dangerous doctrines that were going about, it's no surprise that John opens his letter by skipping right to the point. He jumps right to the main issue. Focusing on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And his excitement is seen in the construction of these first few verses of John. Verses which C.H. Dodd called a grammatical tangle. And indeed it is a tangle in a sense grammatically. Verse 1 contains these four relative clauses. And then in verse 2 we have this parenthetical statement that John inserts. And he doesn't get to the main verb, the main action until verse 3. But it is in this grammatical tangle that John weaves perhaps one of the most profound statements on the impact of the incarnation that you will find anywhere in Scripture. Let me read those verses again. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we've seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Notice here in verse 3, John uses the word fellowship twice. We're going to see it again two more times in verses 6 and 7. And indeed, in these verses... John expresses to us what is the true nature of Christian fellowship. Verses 1 to 4, we're going to look at the source, the true source of fellowship. And in verses 5 to 7, the true test of fellowship. Let's first look at the source. New Testament commentator D. Edmund Hebert said that these first four verses are among the most complicated in all of John's writings. A passage, quote, more remarkable for energy than for lucidity, end quote. 
Indeed, that excitement is expressed. That energy, if you will, as Hebert mentions, it comes out in these verses right away as John, he can't seem to hold back declaring to them that his experience, his firsthand personal experience with Jesus Christ. The beginning of his letter sounds a lot like how he began his gospel. If you remember in John 1, 1, he said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And there I believe he's referring the beginning is to the beginning of time. But here, his reference to the beginning is to the incarnation, the beginning of the incarnation, when God became man. We see that in the fact that he's emphasizing his experience with the physical Christ and the seen in the flesh. What we heard, what we'd seen, what we grasped. Those two first verbs that he mentions there, having heard and have seen, are in the perfect tense in Greek, which means simply this, that they refer to an action that took place in the past, but has implication and impact in the present. What John is essentially saying here by using that tense is that those words that, that he heard directly from Christ, spoken those many, many years ago, it's as if they're still ringing in his ears. The things that he saw more than 50 years prior is as if they happened yesterday. They were still right in front of his mind's eye. That third phrase in verse 1, what we beheld, it's a synonym for to see, but it it carries more of an idea of an intense look, a a careful observation, studying so that you understand the impact and significance of what you're seeing. John also speaks of having touched or grasped Jesus with his hands. It reminds me of when Jesus, remember when he appeared before the disciples and they thought they saw a ghost? And Jesus said, no, no, touch Touch me, see my hands, my feet. Touch me, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Notice at the end of verse 1, John refers to Jesus as he did in his gospel as the Word. Here he calls him the Word of life, the communication from the Father who is life and who brings life. John describes Jesus in verse 2 as eternal life. And notice here that he doesn't say eternal life which was in the Father. He says eternal life, which was with the Father. This tells us that Jesus Christ has always been a distinct person in the Trinity. That he is the same essence as the Father, but, but here as John notes and articulates, he is distinct from the Father. He is eternal life who was with the Father. After this barrage of relative clauses in verse 1 and this parenthetical declaration of who Christ is in verse 2. John gets to his main verb in verse 3. We proclaim. That is the idea. We announce. We report. It it carries the nuance of being sent on a mission, a, a commissioning, if you will, to give a message. John says we here to include the apostles. And what he's saying here is that we've been commissioned to declare a message. More, more than that, a person. Contrary to those who are going around saying that that God did not come in the flesh, that Jesus was not really the God-man, He did come. And I know it for certain because I was there. I heard Him. I saw Him. I touched Him. I beheld Him. We were there. We know. Verse 2, he says, they bore witness. They testify. That means to give testimony of what one has seen. We get the word martyr from that word. And so here we see John is presenting a powerful case on the reality of the historical Jesus based not only on his own experience, but also on the authority of the commission he was given by Jesus to proclaim his message. So John's message here, and he opens with these statements to say his message is carrying authority. It has weight. He needs to be listened to. 
And John here is doing more than offering a polemic as to why they should listen to him. He's, he's doing more here than defending his apostolic authority. Because it's as, as he reflect, he's reflecting back on the years spent with Jesus, as he remembers all that he experienced there, he, he's stressing here the reality of God becoming a man so that they would not be deceived by those who were going around saying God did not become a man. That Jesus Christ was not who he said he was. And it was so important that he made sure they understood because if they didn't, if they got Jesus wrong, then they would get and not understand and not have fellowship with him. They would be robbed of the whole point of the incarnation, which was to bring man to God through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 3, John says why he proclaimed the reality of Jesus Christ. Again, here we see his motivation. What we have seen, what we have heard, we proclaim to you so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And I find that statement interesting here. Because you would think that that John would have said something like, I'm proclaiming Jesus Christ, I'm declaring Him what I have experienced and what He commissioned me to proclaim so that you may have, we'd expect there to see salvation, Right? Or perhaps I, I, what we have seen and heard, I'm proclaiming to you that you may have forgiveness. But instead, notice John says, fellowship, fellowship. Indeed, salvation from sin and hell, forgiveness of sin, going to heaven. These are all wonderful blessings of believing in Jesus Christ. But John says here, ultimately, the goal is fellowship. You see, these are a means to an end. Salvation, forgiveness, redemption. That end being fellowship. Fellowship comes from a Greek word that I think is familiar to most of us. Anyone know it here? Fellowship is koinonia. See, I knew you knew that. It comes from the adjective koinos, which means basically common, something shared. It's used in the New Testament to refer to sharing a common task or a purpose. As Philippians 1.5 mentions where... Paul says the Philippians shared in the gospel mission with Paul. 2 Corinthians 8.4 speaks of a koinonia or a sharing and providing for the needs of the poor. Acts 2 gives a picture of koinonia where the people shared with those who had need and how they were continually spending time with one another in prayer and in communion and praise and having meals together. One scholar likened koinonia to the Roman concept of societas, which was defined as a legally binding association of equal partners based on their mutual assent to a common purpose. And, you know, I I think it's that idea that many have in the church of what koinonia is, that it's spending time with each other because we have a set of common beliefs, that it's because we have a, a, a common purpose together, that we share a partnership with one another. And indeed, those are certainly aspects of what we share together. But the fellowship that John is speaking of here goes far deeper. It is far more profound. Pastor Ed said a few weeks ago that fellowship is having something bigger than us to share in common. He's exactly right. Because you see, by sending Jesus into the world as a man who then lived a perfect life, a life without any sin ever, and then dying an unjust And brutal death, and then in that death, taking upon himself the wrath of God for the sins of those who would believe and repent. Beloved, Jesus did not do all of that just so that we could share some meals together. 
He did not do that just so that we would have a common mission together. Or just so that we would participate in church functions with one another or or spend time together. Again, those are all certainly blessings of what we have in salvation. But what is it that ultimately Christ died for? What is it that he wanted most? First, foremost, to obey the will of the Father. But in that, in sacrificing himself and giving himself on the cross so that he might be payment for sin. Why? Why did he do that? So there could be more people in heaven? So that church attendance could be on the rise? It's much deeper. Koinonia with God. John, interestingly enough, the only time he uses that word is in 1 John, in these verses that we read. He doesn't use it anywhere else in his letters or in the gospel. But in the gospel of John, we see the concept all over the place. Recall the words of John 3.16, Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. John 5.24, He who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. John 6.40, Everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. John 10.27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Each of those verses contain the words eternal life, and Christ giving eternal life to those who believe. And there are many, many more references to eternal life in John's Gospel. And I bring this up because when Jesus spoke of eternal life, you know, he was speaking there of fellowship. By eternal life, he meant more than living forever, right? By eternal life, he meant more than going to heaven and being in heaven, right? John 17, 3, you know this passage. Jesus tells us exactly what he means by eternal life when he says this is eternal life. As he's praying to the Father, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He describes and defines eternal life there in the context of relationship with God. Fellowship. Fellowship with God. To know Him. To be known by Him. We also see this concept of fellowship in John's Gospel, not only in the idea of eternal life, but also when he speaks of abiding in God. At the end of John 14, Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him and will come to, make, uh, come to him and make our abode with him. That is, dwell with him, remain with him, be with him. And then right after that, Jesus gives that well-known metaphor, illustration of him as the vine and we as the branches. And there's a word he repeats ten times in those first eleven verses of John 15. The word abide. Abide, verse 4, abide in me. Verse 7, if you abide in me. Verse 9, abide in my love. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Again, ten times in these verses, he says abide. This idea of remain, dwell with. And then at the end of his prayer in John 17, in fact, if you could turn here for a moment to see this. John 17. This is the end of what many have called the high priestly prayer. And here Christ bears his heart to the Father. What his greatest desire is he's looking on. This is the eve of going to the cross. And in John 
17, he prays first for his disciples. And then he turns his attention to us in verse 20. John 17, 20, he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, referring to his disciples, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Beloved, this is hallowed soil upon which we now tread. We must stand here in awe of Christ for what he prays here is so profound, so deep, I think it goes beyond our ability to comprehend what he is praying here, what he is saying here, what he is desiring here. Here he's describing in detail what it means to have fellowship with the Father and with his Son. Here we have a description, a description that again defies explanation. You see here that fellowship that we enter into at salvation, it's bigger than some doctrine we share. It is bigger or larger than some person we agree about certain facts on. It is more vast than some common interests or convictions that we have. Notice, did you catch what he says here? He's describing a profoundly intimate communion, an association, a a connection, a, a closeness. It goes beyond what we can even imagine. Verse 21, that they may be in us, I in them, you in me. Verse 24, that they may be with me. Verse 26, I in them. Just as you are in me, I in them. You know what he's saying? You understand what fellowship is? If you believe in the Lord Jesus, if you've turned from your sins, placed your trust in him, confess unto him and been forgiven, you've been brought into a relationship intimacy beyond what you can imagine to be in an eternal fellowship not 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 just in close proximity to god but with and jesus says here in god this is beyond comprehension beloved this is awesome this is amazing ponder this think about these words that christ has spoken don't let them float by and wait for the next thing that i'm going to say I in them. Jesus in us. This fellowship that we have brought into comes in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. This intimacy, this relationship with God can only take place through the death of His Son, the shed blood that He gave on the cross in order to bring forgiveness. By His death and resurrection, Jesus made eternal life possible. His death on the cross provided a means for us to abide in Him. 
He's brought us into intimate communion with God. Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones said of this phrase, Here indeed is the whole object, the ultimate, the goal of all Christian experience and all Christian endeavor. This beyond any question is the central message of the Christian gospel and of the Christian faith. While the Christian must hold right views and doctrines, that is not the essence of the Christian life. Rather, it is to have fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ did not come to earth merely to give us an exalted teaching that we can apply to human relationships. He did not come merely to save us from hell. He came to bring us into fellowship with the Father and with Himself. End quote. That brings us back to John's letter. And why it was so vital for him to proclaim the historical reality of the incarnate Jesus Christ. So that they would be forgiven. So that they would not be deceived by those around them who were making false claims about Christ. So that they would understand who Jesus really was. What he had really done. So that they would come to salvation. So that they ultimately would have fellowship with God and with fellow believers. With God's children. Let's make our way back there to 1 John. I want to look for a moment, just as a side note here, again to John's motivation. Because John here is giving us an example to follow. Notice here again the motivation that he gives for proclaiming the message in the middle of verse 3. He says, we proclaim what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. Kempis is going to touch on this more Next week, but it's important that we see here from John's example that Christians are not only people who have been given fellowship with God and one another, but they are anxious for others to have it too. In fact, honestly, that's the litmus test if you really believe it yourself. Because if you truly do, if you truly understand what it means to have fellowship with God, if you have genuinely experienced forgiveness, to have your sins lifted from you, to be declared right before God because of Christ, if you have really believed that you've been given eternal life, if you truly comprehend that you've been freed from sin and hell, if you have a sincere hope in heaven, if you know what it means to say with Paul to live as Christ and to die as gain, then you will have necessity and conviction and burden. Want others to know that too, right? You want others to experience the joy of fellowship with Christ. As John says here, we message, we're proclaiming this message so that we have fellowship with one another and our fellowship was with God. And we tell you this because it's our joy. Our joy could be made complete. You will desire to partner with Jesus Christ in rescuing lost souls. Because Jesus came on a rescue mission. That's why John proclaimed Christ. That's why Paul said, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. That's why Jesus said, pray for more workers to be sent into the harvest. May the Lord move in us to have this passion, this drive, this motivation, this sincere desire. That those whom we know and those who we don't will be part of this fellowship with God. To proclaim Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Amen. Okay, we've seen from these first four verses the true source of fellowship. Let's consider now the true test. Verses 5 to 7. Look at verse 5 with me. 
This is the message that we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in him there's no darkness at all. We say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. John makes it abundantly clear here that being in fellowship means that we will want what God wants and we will be as he is. And John brings it all into focus here in verse 5 as he reveals the particular message that he was commissioned by Christ to proclaim. As he distills what he had seen, what he had heard into this concise statement. And that statement being this, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That's it. That's the sum of it, John says. He puts that verb is at the beginning of the sentence in Greek to emphasize the point. He's he's saying, of all that I heard, of all that I saw, of all that I witnessed, this is the message. This is it. God is light. But what does that mean? God is light. Some take it to be a reference to his glory, to his essential nature. God was often described in terms of light. Remember back in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, God's Shekinah glory which shone forth. Others take this to mean a a reference to God as the source of spiritual life. Seems to be the idea in John 1, 4, which says of Jesus, in him was life. The life was the light of men. Light can also refer to revelation. He could be saying here, God is light means that he is the source of all truth. Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Or light here can have the idea of holiness as conveyed in John 3.19, which says this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, but men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. And indeed, I think it is that moral aspect which John is focusing on and has in view here because the context in verses 5 through 10 are all surrounding moral behavior. Verses 6 and 7, he speaks of walking in the light and walking in darkness, where walking is that metaphor often used in Scripture to describe how one behaves, their daily course of their life, what one does. Also notice in verses 8 and following that he deals with the topic of sin. And so the context here is moral behavior. And so when John says God is light, he means here that God is holy, that he is pure, that he is without any sin, that he is unblemished. And that is the foundation of the gospel message. That's where it starts. It starts with his holiness. In fact, what is it that we learn from Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4 is echoing through the corridors of heaven? What is it that is sounding forth over and over again from the throne room? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts creator of the universe is always and will always be pure, unblemished, completely devoid of sin and evil. But such is not the case for us, is it? And so the gospel is God's answer to our sin. In fact, notice in verse 7 and again in verse 9, John repeats the fact that Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. So here in verse 5, John has distilled Christ's message to this, that God is light, that he is holy. And he reminds us of this fact. It's vital to understand it so that we would understand what true fellowship then looks like. 
what it means. Notice John says in verses 6 and 7, if someone claims to have fellowship with God, if they claim to have this intimate communion, this relationship with Him whereby their sins have been forgiven, then their life is going to back up their claim. The phrase we often like to use is their walk will be consistent with their talk. And notice John approaches this, he approaches it from two different directions. In verse 6 he says, anyone who says... And note the emphasis here on profession. Anyone who says they have fellowship with God and yet their life is characterized by sinful behavior. John says what? He says that they're they're lying. They're self-deceived. Truth is not in them. Then in verse seven, he approaches it from the positive aspect when he says the but the person who walks in the light, the one whose life is characterized by a pursuit of godliness That is evidence that that person has truly been forgiven, that that person truly has fellowship with God. John says the same thing in a slightly different way, just a few verses later in 1 John 2, verse 4. And I think I've mentioned before, these are my favorite verses in the Bible. These are the verses that God used to wake me up, to open my eyes. Because I was the one saying, I'm walking the light that I have fellowship with God. I was the one saying that I was a Christian. But then John said this, and the Spirit spoke to me directly. The one who says, again, notice the profession, the one who says I have come to know him and doesn't keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. (laughs) Those words, again, John says, if you say this and it's not consistent with what you do and who you are, you're a liar. That was the day I realized I was lying. I was deceived. He went on to say, but whoever keeps his word, which means obey it in him, the love of God has been truly perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. Notice the fellowship terminology. By this, we know we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. John's saying the same thing here that he just said in chapter one, that the person whose heart that's been transformed, that truly has fellowship with God, they will have a life that's consistent with that profession. Again, not perfect, mind you. That's why he repeats in verses seven to nine, Christ's ongoing cleansing of sin. But that person's life will be characterized by a pursuit of holiness. Now, John's pretty strong here. Several times he says, if that's not you, you're a liar. How can he be so assertive? How can he make such a bold and strong claim? Well, it simply comes down to this. Anyone who has been brought into fellowship with God will act like God because they've been given a new nature. His nature. They've been born again by his seed. That's a point John makes over and over in the rest of his letter. Notice in 1 John 2, verse 29. He says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Or in 1 John 3, 9. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. And he cannot sin because he's born of God. See, John can declare with certainty that that believers will walk in the light because God abides in them and God is light. That's why he says in 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light. Or 1 Peter 1, 16, you shall be holy for God is holy. 
Where Paul said in Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God as beloved children. And let me ask you this. Why, why is it that our children have our characteristics? Because they have our genes, right? If any of you have met my dad, you've probably noticed he and I sound almost exactly alike. In fact, we were at dinner with the McCarries a few weeks ago after Bethany's wedding. And uh, I think, Patty, you mentioned being freaked out by how close we sounded to each other. My dad and I used to torture my grandma all the time. We would call her and then hand the phone to each other, pass it back and forth. We got that poor lady so confused. <laughs> Who is this now? Who is this talking? We were very cruel. Now, is it a random coincidence that I sound exactly like my dad? That's just some freak of nature? Not at all, right? He gave me his chromosomes. There's a part of him in me. And so that there are behaviors, there's mannerisms, there's looks that are just like his. And in the same way, if you're truly saved, you share God's nature. Not that you are God, becoming a God. But John says you are born of him. His seed abides in you. You are his child. And so to profess to be his child and not act like him, John says that's impossible. First John 3, 7, he says, little children, make sure no one deceives you. Again, it's so important. That there's people going around saying many things that you don't have to worry about your sin. That's just something attached to your physical body. That's not really you. So don't don't make issue of it. It's your spirit that's pure. John says, don't be deceived. That is false. That is wrong. Anyone who says that is a liar. He says in 3, 7, the one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. So let me stop here and ask you a question. Is that you? Is your life characterized by a pursuit of holiness? Would others who know you say that you walk in the light, that that you're striving to be godly? Again, not that you've arrived, but, but would they say, yep, they're on the path. When you sin, do you confess it? As John talks about in 1 John 1, 9, do, do you repent? Do you mourn over it? Or do you just ignore it and move on? Is your talk proven by your walk? Because again, God's intent is salvation. That the, the aim of the gospel, the, the purpose of forgiveness of sin is that we be holy and blameless, as Ephesians 1.4 talks about. That we become like Jesus and in that have fellowship with Jesus. And not only fellowship with Him, but John also mentions fellowship with one another. In fact, notice back in chapter 1, both times he mentions fellowship with God in verses 3 and 7, he also mentions fellowship with one another. Verse 9, he says, if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with, and now you'd expect him to say here, fellowship with God, right? That's what he said back in verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with God. So in verse 7, he said, if we are walking in the light, then we do have fellowship with, but he doesn't say God, he says with one another. He's showing here the idea of fellowship is interchangeable. (laughs) It's a special communion shared with God and at the same time and in the same way with one another. Isn't that what Jesus prayed in John 17? That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. See, Jesus is saying here, 
our fellowship with one another is so much more than sharing of our possessions and our, our time, our talents, our experiences. Those are a manifestation. Rather, fellowship is a communion. It is bound up in our communion with God and is an inseparable, intimate con- connection. You know, I don't think we get this. I've studied John before and I've thought and studied about fellowship before. And the the more I do, the more I realize I don't get it. I don't understand it fully what that means. My connection to you. My connection to God. It's greater than the connection of blood or promise. Do you realize we share a more intimate relationship? My relationship with you is more intimate, more connected, more bound than your relationship with your kids or with your spouse. I don't go, ooh, all right? You know what I'm talking about, right? It's a communion, a connection that I think goes far beyond what we understand, can imagine. It is so profound. Beloved, the true test that there is this genuine fellowship with God is evidenced by our walk in holiness with God and by our walk in love with one another. And that's where John goes in the whole rest of his letter. In fact, he talks so much about it that he's often called the apostle of love. 1 John 2, 9, he says, The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there's no cause for stumbling in him. Again, notice he refers abides and light. 1 John 3.11, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. 1 John 3.14, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Or the verse that many of us know, many of us know the song to. 1 John 4.7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God, for God is love. The one who does not know God, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And notice here, it's interesting, in that statement that we all know that God is love, it's in the context of fellowship we share, expressing itself in love for one another. God is light, so His children will walk in the light. God is love, so His children will walk in love. Again, this is the evidence of true fellowship that believers will love. Why? Because they're born of God. His seed abides in them. And He is love. He loves. And He showed that love primarily by sending His Son, by sacrificing what was most dear to Him. And He says in these same words, in the same context, God is love, and so I know that His children will love. He makes it very clear, the connection that we share in our relationship with one another and with God in 1 John 4:19 we love because he first loved us if someone says i love god and hates his brother he's a liar there john goes again liar for the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen can't love god whom he has not seen again john's very definitive very direct he speaks with bold confidence in the spirit because he knows God's children will love because God is love. And notice John doesn't say here, you must love because God first loved you. He says, you will love because God first loved you. There's a difference. He's not beating us over the head with the command. You need to love. You must love. You must love. God's commanding it. Therefore, you need to do it. 
He's saying, if you have fellowship with God, you will love. Do you see here, we often talk about this, and I understand why, you know, our, our vertical relationship and our horizontal and how if this isn't right, this isn't right. But I think even in that illustration, it, it still shows a disconnection. It's like a, it's like graph paper. You know, there, there, there is no up-down relationship and side-to-side relationship that are distinct from one another. We're not talking about a Cartesian coordinate system here for you math geeks. It's not an X, Y, Z sort of thing. We don't. A Christian life is not a piece of graph paper where we have the vertical and horizontal relationship. It's a blank piece of paper where we're all in it together. It's intertwined. There's no separation, no distinction. That's why John can say here, if you don't love your brother, I know you don't love God no matter what you say. Again, beloved, this is profound. This is challenging. But that is what fellowship, true fellowship is. And so our gathering with one another really is meant to provide an expression of our fellowship. The purpose of our gathering together is for the natural outpouring of our relationship with one another to express a love and unity. Remember, as Jesus said, he wanted us to be one. He and us, we and him, he and God, so that the world would know that God sent him. That We come together and are, are bound together, committed to one another, commune with one another. And so as we gather, the expression of that communion is to burst forth from us. The expression of love and care. So that as the world looks in. Stands amazed. Jesus said they'll know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. But sometimes we, we flip this around. See it as this command, this burden that we have to carry. I got to love that person. <laughs> as opposed to I want to love that person. It's hard, Father. Help me. But I have this natural inclination and desire because of the fellowship I share with you and with that person. Indeed, that's what's encouraged in Hebrews 10, 24 is gather together, be together, because in that, if there's true fellowship with the father and one another, that will stimulate this environment of provoking one another to love. In fact, you see it behind me there, right? Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, the theme verse for the month, let us encourage how to stimulate, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Again, this passage is not intended to be used as a club to hit someone over the head with. You have to be at church, you have to go to this Bible study. God demands church attendance. He's checking the rolls. Making sure you're giving face time to one another. Yes, there is a command here not to forsake our gathering together, but not because God just wants us to show up. He wants us together to encourage one another, to stimulate one another as we have gathered to love and good deeds again so that, Jesus prayed, the world would know you sent me, Father. I want my people to look like us so that they will want to be in fellowship with us. Fellowship is so profound, so far beyond where we need to be, beloved. Again, it's not just about showing up and doing nice things for each other. Those are good. I don't want to discourage that. But that comes as an outflow of the relationship that we have, the bond we have in Jesus Christ. 
that his death has brought about. That we're forgiven now. The, sin, the slate's been wiped clean. Our debt has been erased. It's gone. So that we can share this intimate relationship with the Father and the Son. And John doesn't mention the Spirit explicitly here, but we have a fellowship with the Trinity. He mentions it later in 1 John 3. And with one another. Again, beloved, this is profound. It should be the natural desire of our hearts. If indeed you are a fellowship with God, you will want that expression of it to gather with one another. But if you have little or no desire to be with believers, if you avoid close relationships with Christians, if you struggle to forgive those who have sinned against you or offended you, if you are, when you are with believers, if, if there's no encouragement to love or good deeds, if, if there's little conversation about Christ or what he is doing in your life, or if there's little prayer or the sharing of the word and what God is teaching you and doing in your life, if that's not happening, that's not the pattern, then ask yourself, are you truly in fellowship with God? Because that will be, again, the natural flow out is to want to talk about him because we share him together. We're in Him together. If you are in fellowship with God, you will be in fellowship with His people. And a fellowship, again, that is centered on Christ, on knowing Him, on loving Him, on edifying and building up one another to that end. And it's to that end, I, I want to encourage you this month to pursue time with one another. Just as Brad last month gave gave four... Um, I think he called them a homework assignment. I, I prefer to call it an application opportunity. How's that? Four things I want you to do this month. First is to make a point that if you're not part of a fellowship group or you're not involved in a children or youth ministry, that you this month visit a fellowship group or visit children's or youth ministry. We have three fellowship groups that meet first hour and two that meet second hour. Children's ministry, both hours, the youth second hour. Visit that group. And those of you who are in that group, make an effort to be welcoming and encouraging. Again, we want to be with one another because if we're in fellowship with God and one another, it'll foster an environment of love and good deeds so that Christ will be exalted. Second, invite someone that you don't know very well. It's going to get a little tougher here. Invite someone you don't know very well Come over for a meal or a dessert or coffee. And then make a point when you're together. Again, the point isn't just being together, but make a point to share your testimony with one another. Pray with one another. Ask for prayer. Third, read the recommended book of the month this month. It's called True Community by Jerry Bridges. Very good. There will be some copies, I'm sure, in the bookstore. You can order online. It's not a huge, thick book. It's very doable. I think you will be blessed and motivated understand what fellowship means and what it looks like. And lastly, two weeks from now, Sunday night, we're going to have the family fellowship service, February 15th. You need to be there. Now, I get a pass because I'm going to be in Africa. But you're not in Africa, so you have to be there. Again, it's a time for us to gather, sing to the Lord with one another, share with time with each other. So again, you got those four things? First, visit fellowship group, children and youth ministry. Second, Invite somebody out or to your house. Get to know them. Third, read the book True Community by Bridges. And fourth, Family Fellowship Service, February 15th. You know a theme each month. We're going to do this, the, the four, all right? 
Again, beloved, make a commitment to do these four things this month. Again, not not to show up because it's a homework assignment. Do it to take advantage of the opportunity that you have to live out the amazing fellowship into which the shed blood of God the Son made possible. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father, I... I'm certain my words have been inadequate to express the profound and deep, intimate reality of what Christ's death has made possible. Fellowship with you. Fellowship with one another in a way far beyond what any human relationship could accomplish. Lord, give us understanding what this means. May your spirit open our eyes to, Lord, to, to grasp what it is to have <clears throat> true fellowship. Lord, what that means and that we would express that by our love for one another so that the world may know that you have sent your son to redeem humanity. To be Lord and Savior. Father, may we not look that our time together is a means to achieve personal ends, but as a means to achieve the end for which you desire, to glorify Christ and how we live. Father, I thank you so much for John. I thank you for his letter. I thank you for how you've used it in my life. And I pray, God, that you would use it in the lives of all here. If there are any who are on that same path that I was on, who say that they know you, and yet their life betrays that, that they are walking in darkness, that they are not heeding your word, that, Lord, you would reveal to them that they are self-deceived and that they need Christ. I pray for all of us, Father, who are your children, that, Lord, forgive us for not living a life of love, unity, Lord, that you expect and desire and that should be for us. Lord, move us to strive evermore. Give us a great passion and motivation to love one another, to proclaim your message through our word and deed. We pray this in the name of our dear Savior. Amen.